Now, I think most of you in the congregation will have a pretty good idea of who I'm talking about. Have you ever heard about the vaudeville comedy sketch called Who's on First? You know, Abbott and Costello are the ones who made it famous. And what it's really about is Abbott, who came across as the more intelligent of the two, he's trying to explain to Costello the names of some players on a baseball team. Now, there's a little part in the beginning that you usually don't hear in the skit where they're having a conversation about how odd the, the names are. And so that's the setup for it. And what happens, though, is that the names of the players are misunderstood or easily interpreted as meaning something different. And it kind of goes like this. Abbott says, well, let's see. We have on the bases who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. And Costello said, that's, that's what I'm trying to find out. Then Abbott says, I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. You know, and then Costello says, look, do you have a, a manager, do you have a first baseman? Who's on first? Well, who's on first? And, you know, it just goes on and on. And it's funny. But it's also very typical, isn't it, of the way that we struggle sometimes to communicate. We're all using the same words, but depending on the circumstances and where you come from and, and, uh, and how you hear and all those different things, you're going to hear something different. There's many times when we feel like Costello and somebody says, who's on first, what's on second, and, and you go, I, I don't understand. And, you know, if we look at the circumstances and the situations in our two readings today, we might think that same thing. We might think that, first of all, the words don't make sense, or we struggle to understand they mean what I think they mean, because I'm not so sure I get it. Look at Isaiah. In this particular section of Isaiah, this is after they've been exiled to Babylon. Their cities are in ruin, and yet they're praising God. They're expecting this banquet. They're expecting this covenant and rejoicing that God is going to deliver them. You know, and I don't know about you, sometimes I read that kind of thing and I think, I'm thinking that they just said that kind of thing to make it sound better than it really was. Surely they didn't really mean rejoice. Because I wouldn't rejoice if there were circumstances like that. And then we have the last part or almost the last part to the letter to the Philippians. We've talked about it a couple of times. We talked about it last week. Now, here we know that Paul's in prison. He's in prison, more than likely awaiting, he assumes, his execution. And he's writing to people that he loves. And he talks throughout that letter, not just in the verses that we have today, but he talks throughout that letter of his joy, and he rejoices how much he loves them, how great they are, and how great God is. Now, there's a little conflict that's going on. Don't get it wrong. He's, when he talks about Yodia, she's really kind of having a problem. And so he's asking them to kind of mend the fences. Let's work together in the gospel. But he's rejoicing. And I don't know about you, I'm thinking... I don't get how Isaiah can rejoice. And I don't know what Paul is rejoicing about. There's a part of me that I, I want to go either, 
they're not in reality. Or again, they're saying things in a way that they just want whoever's hearing this letter to feel better. And they're not really, really telling the truth. Because if they were telling the truth, they wouldn't be happy. They'd be pretty upset. Or maybe there's a possibility of what do they know that I don't know? What is it that's transpiring in their hearts that hasn't always transpired in mine or yours? Well, I'd like to propose three characteristics to what joy is that may be different than what you think of as joy, but that explains the rejoicing in Isaiah and especially explains the rejoicing in Paul. The first is that joy, as it's intended here, is lasting and it's not dependent on things externally. It's lasting and it's not dependent on things externally. You know, if we look at the dictionary, I don't know about you, sometimes that's the first place I go. The dictionary tells us that joy is the emotion of great delight or happiness caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying, a state of happiness. So it's kind of one of those definitions that uses another word that you don't know quite the meaning of to define it. So it's somehow equating in the dictionary joy with happiness. Well, now, I maintain that that's helpful, but that's not what Paul's talking about. Because if you then look up the word happiness in the dictionary, it says that happiness results from the possession or attainment of what one considers good. So if I read that correctly, the dictionary says that happiness comes from out here. But that's not true about joy. Joy doesn't come from out here. Joy comes from in here. Because if you put your trust in happiness, you're at some point in your life going to end up being a victim of circumstances. And therefore, your happiness will change. We could probably all tell pretty long stories about how the happiness in our life has changed depending on circumstances. Circumstances in relationships, with economics, with living situations, any number of things that we say make us happy. That isn't really what they're talking about. You know, I think of a dear friend of mine who, in circumstances, would talk about what she was grateful for. And in all the years that I knew her, and in all the years she'd talk about the joy in her life. Not one time, and I paid attention, not one time did I ever hear her equate the joy in her life with anything tangible. And she had a lot that she could have equated it with. A lot of success, a lot of things, but never did she equate the joy in her life with things that were tangible? So first of all, uh, joy is not something that's dependent on something externally. And it lasts. It's not transient. 
like the success we may have with our jobs, our living situations. So it's not dependent on things external. But the other thing that's important is joy is not dependent on an absence of sorrow and pain. That's important. It's not dependent on an absence of sorrow and pain. Joy that lasts is not a fantasy that's out of touch with reality. It's not a giddiness, a happiness about something transient or temporary. Joy is not ignorant of tragedy. It's grounded in a profound awareness of both the joys and sorrow of life. You know, these last few months we've had what seems like endless stories on the news of people in floods and hurricanes and storms that have lost so many things that we call happiness. Everything taken from them. And I don't know about you, there's been times when I've sensed their ability to communicate the joy that they have. I want to be suspect. I'm thinking, well, you know, they've just got a camera in front of them. Surely they're not feeling a joy. They've lost everything. But they are. They are joyful. And it's coming from somewhere that doesn't have to do with what they lost. So in Philippians, when Paul talks about joy and rejoicing, it's more than I've got a wonderful feeling everything's going to be okay. Because we know the end of the story, don't we? We know what happens to Paul. And I have a feeling that he probably knew what was going to happen as well. One of the great theologians of this century is a man named Karl Barth. And he probed deeply into what he called the human experience. And he said, joy in this world is always in spite of something. It's defiant, nevertheless. But it's in spite of something. You know, and for me, it's joy is more than just good times. It's joy in the face of adversity and difficulty and loss and sorrow. My guess is everybody in this room has lost somebody. And that's a kind of loss that takes your breath away. But my guess is every one of you, in spite of that loss, have had moments in the midst of that sorrow when your heart knew that all was fundamentally well in spite of what you were feeling. Another kind of great theologian is a man named Henry Nouwen. He was a Catholic priest and he died in 1996 and he wrote about 40 books on spirituality. And one of them that's incredibly famous is called The Wounded Healer. But he had a couple of themes that he wrote about a great deal that he struggled with most of his life. And I share them because I think they add profoundly to what he says. One of the things he struggled with was the whole concept of celibacy and his need for physical intimacy and emotional intimacy. And he also struggled, struggled his entire adult life 
with depression and his faith. So these words that he wrote did not come easily. But they were born out of a man who truly had gone to the depths. Joy, Henry Nowen said, is something that does not separate happy days from sad days. Successful moments of failure. Successful moments from moments of failure. It is a divine gift that does not leave us during illness, grief, oppression, or persecution. It does not depend on the circumstances of our life or even on our momentary feelings. Let me say that one line again. It is a divine gift. Gift. Not earned. Not granted. Not bought. A gift that does not leave us. A divine gift that does not leave us. We know that that joy that lasts is not externally dependent. We know that joy that lasts is not dependent on the absence of sorrow and grief. So we know two things that joy is not. So what is joy if it's not those two things? I propose that joy that lasts is rooted, grounded, and cemented in our experience with God, in our experience with the divine. You know, in the New Testament, there are three categories of words that can be defined as rejoicing or joy. Um, And of course, that's the nice thing about Greek. They actually have multiple words, meanings for things. We're a little limited in English. That's why we struggle. What's joy and what's happiness? Now, one of the words in Greek for rejoice or joy are the expressions or the shouts of singing and clapping hands and lifting up praise to God. We know that one. A second one is a group of words that identify outward expression of kind of an inner feeling. And then there's a third group that's used a total of 140 times in the New Testament. That's really the hallmark of Christianity. Now, Paul rarely uses words from that second group that talk about an outward expression and the inward feeling, and he never talks about the first one. <laughs> you know, Paul was not a yippy-skippy guy, uh, you know, so he never talks about the first one. So hardly used the second, but he used the third one a great deal. And that joy is not primarily dependent on health and wealth, comfort or well-being, but is dependent on God. So when Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, written from a prison cell, written from a prison cell, he was describing joy that was more than a good mood or an expression. It was more than a... (laughs) than a state of mind, it was more than a feeling of happiness. So joy is a a worldview. 
a perception, if you will, of God reality or the presence of God that, that generates hope and endurance in times of affliction and temptation or ease and prosperity. Because joy enables us to see beyond any particular experience. Any particular experience. Whether it's good or bad. And instead to be gracious and know that God is there. Have you ever had one of those moments? I know you have. Because I know I can't be the only one in the room that has. Have you ever had one of those moments where you have this sense of joy that you cannot articulate. And you know that you are one with the universe, with God at that moment. And you can't, you can't say it was about this person. You can't say it was about the weather. You can't say it was about what you just got. It just comes out of nowhere. Seemingly out of nowhere. And you know a joy that almost, or probably in my case, does bring tears to your eyes. You cannot explain it, but it's real. That's what Paul's talking about. That divine gift that we all can access if we choose. So that's why the Bible does not say rejoice in circumstances. The Bible doesn't say that. Rejoice that you've lost everything. It says rejoice in the Lord or rejoice in God. Because it's that divine connection that brings that feeling. In the midst of any experience. And since God's presence and steadfast love never changes, the Bible also says rejoice evermore. Rejoice evermore. So joy is not externally dependent. Joy doesn't exist just in the absence of sorrow and pain. But joy is rooted and grounded in the God who is eternal. A divine gift given to all. And so if we are to be clothed in rejoicing, what does that mean? Well, you know, that's a good question. When you get dressed... That's an intentional act, isn't it? You've got to select what you're going to wear and you gauge the temperature and you put something on. And you do it to cover yourself, to protect yourself. I remember at a certain period in my life, I uh, was having a really hard time and I was trying to make some changes in my life. And um, every day, I wore the same thing. I wore Levi's, and then I would wear a clean T-shirt. Yeah, and then I would wear a um, gray hoodie pullover. 
because it was safe. And I would sit there, and I would, you know, they were, they were really, really, really soft Levi's. They were probably really old, is why. But I would rub them because they were soft. And then I would, you know, feel my arms and the hooded sweatshirt. I felt safe. And so I had to clothe myself in that cocoon, if you will. That's what being clothed in rejoicing is. Remembering every day, intentionally, the divine gift that is ours for the taking. That in spite of external circumstances, in spite of any loss, that we can feel at one with God and each other. Amen.